thinking about uh, our passage and where we're going to be. And we're going to be in John uh, chapter 12 this morning as we, uh, we, we kind of set aside the series we'd been in two weeks ago. And last week we started to look ahead to Easter and we were talking about uh, Jesus setting his face to Jerusalem and looking ahead. And now this week we're going to step into that last week. And our passage that we're going to be looking at is in John chapter 12. And it's actually printed in your bulletin. If you don't have a Bible or you want to follow along with the, the version I'm reading, it's, it's right there in your bulletin. But as I thought about all that, uh, what kept coming to mind is, is our world today and the uh, climate, the political climate in our world, the rhetoric, the way people talk. Uh, the more you listen, uh, especially this being an election year, the more promises you hear from politicians, the more you hear I can do this and I can fix things and I can do. And uh, as you listen, as you start to hear, and this is just kind of the, the, the way it goes, but uh, any politician you listen to, you hear promises that you start to think, I really don't think they can quite do that. Or that's the way I think a lot of times. I think, man, they're promising a lot of stuff that I'm not sure. And what happens is we start to, in our society, especially when we start to remove God from the picture, we start to transcendentalize. I think that's a made-up word by a guy named Alistair McGrath. He's a Christian apologist, but he says we transcendentalize things other than God. In, in our culture, a lot of times we do that through politics. We start to say, oh, this guy will fix it, and we make it into these great things. And we start to put uh, these things in places that they really shouldn't hold. And if you listen carefully, you start to hear politicians buy into that a little bit, and they start to talk that way. Our current president, I've heard him say several times that America is the last best hope of the world. And not to be partisan or anything, because our our uh, previous president right before him used to say there's power, power, wonder-working power in the ideals and the goodness of the American people. Now, if you know that quote, where that comes from, originally it was there's power, power, wonder-working power in the blood of the Lamb. And in politics, we like to take those things and go, no, no, it's all in the politics and what we can do. And, and we start to do this and we start to kind of elevate these things to a place that they really can't hold up to. And we start to make these uh, more. We start to remove God and we start to put every other things in his place. And as we're going to look at this morning, we're going to see this politics and this kind of stuff and the, the earthly wisdom we look at getting all mixed up in and again. Not much has changed in 2000 years. Because what we see is what we're going to look at this morning is as Jesus triumphal entry, as we call it, into Jerusalem. But what we're going to see is swirling all around him is they were looking for a political king. They were looking for a king that would come and overthrow an earthly government. And so what we see we do in our culture, we take politicians and, and raise them to a place that they're not really supposed to be in. And we make them more than they should be. And, and we put them in this this lofty position we see the opposite in our text this morning. They take the very son of God and try to make him an earthly king. They try to bring him down and fit him into their mold. But the problem's the same. We're looking at it on temporal terms and we're seeing it just the way that God. Uh, we're not seeing the way God will work, but we're seeing it. We're, we're trying to make it fit in our box. And so as we look this morning, we're, we're talking about uh, John 12 and the, the triumphal entry uh, within the church, if you've grown up in the church, you know, we, we often refer to this as Palm Sunday. They're throwing the palms before Jesus and they're waving them. And we're going to talk about that in a minute. And that comes from this passage and the, what we're looking at today. And you see this real uh, is it, before we read the passage, I want to just try to set the scene a little bit for you. Jesus, uh, as he goes and people are getting excited right right before this, the last thing John kind of tells us right before this happens just right before this time is Jesus heals or, or not just heals, raises his friend Lazarus from the dead. 
And those that are there that see this miracle is Jesus. He goes to meet his friend. He's heard he's sick. He goes to see Lazarus and he's been dead for four days. And Jesus goes and says, Lazarus, come out. And Lazarus comes out. And what happens is it reaches the frenzy about Jesus. There's people that are so excited that have seen his miracles and they are pumped. They're they're ready to embrace him as the Messiah. They're so excited. And then there's those that are against Jesus, mostly the political and religious leaders. And they're looking at it and they're they're so against him. And it reaches its frenzy here in our passage. We're, We're to this point where there's so many that are excited and there are so many that are against him. And all this is swirling around. And so Jesus comes up for the, the feast of the Passover and he's coming into Jerusalem and all this excitement's happening and that's where we take place. And it's the Sunday, he's coming in the Sunday before Easter. That's what we celebrated as Palm Sunday. The week before the resurrection, just a few days before he would be crucified. We're now to Jesus is the last week of his life. So let's read that with that in mind. Let's read John 12 and we're going to read 12 through 26. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. And his disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd had been with him that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So they came to Philip, who was from Bethesda in Galilee and said and asked him, sir, we wish to see Jesus. And Philip went and told Andrew and Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them. The hour has come for the son of man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains Alone, But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will be my servant, my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Let's uh, just pray real quickly before we begin. Dear Lord, we pray that uh, the words of my mouth would be in accord with your word. I pray that your Holy Spirit would open us to see this because we just confess without you, we're hopelessly lost. We thank you that you promised to be here with us. We pray this in Jesus name. Amen. Amen. So as we're looking at this, I want to look at it three ways. Three questions we're going to ask first, just real simply. What are they doing on the surface? What's happening here? We just want to look at, at the scene and what's going on. And then we're going to ask, how are they missing it? And then thirdly, what's really happening? How we see it rightly. So first, what are they doing? And as I mentioned, there's a frenzy here. There are tons and tons of people that come up to Jerusalem for this festival and at this time. Uh, Josephus, a a, a Jewish historian, would write years after Jesus. He's talking about one of the Passovers just right after this time. And he says that there were 2.7 million people that come to Jerusalem. 
And we don't know exactly how many were there, but that paints the picture of how many people packed in and they came for this feast and were there and the frenzy that's going on and all the things that are swirling around Jesus. And I made the connection at the beginning about the way we get so excited about political things and politicians and uh, 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 conventions and all those things. And in my mind, it's almost I kind of see it like that. You know, you think about when a convention, when a, uh, a candidate's chosen and everybody's so excited and they're so hopeful and they're looking to it and they're talking about it. It's kind of what's happening here. These people are so excited about who Jesus is and what they've seen and they're, they're crowding around them and they're everywhere. And you can imagine him, him walking up to the city. And as he does, he, he takes his seat on this donkey and he begins to come in. And then the picture, if you look at verse 13, it says, So they took the branches of the palm trees and they went out to meet him, crying, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And these words that they were crying out are loaded with meaning. They come to us from Psalm 118. And they had all these things. And Hosanna originally had this connotation of save us, save us. But because of the, uh, the context of, of Psalm 118 and the promises that are there, that over time it began to be salvation is here. Salvation is here. And they started to yell this and and call it out. And they were saying salvation has come and hooray for the king and salvation belongs to the king. And so they're they're calling this and they're seeing this and you're seeing this picture. And the the neat thing when we read this and we talk about those words and what they mean, their words were right. Their words were so correct. They were more correct than they even could know. Yes, salvation had come. And yes, their king was there. But there's a disconnect there because they're not seeing Jesus as he really is. They're seeing him as as something less than he is. They're not quite getting the full picture of who he is or what he was coming to do. And just like I was talking about with our politics, we do the opposite. They were doing the same thing from the opposite end and trying to make Jesus into the conquering king. You see here that they're underestimating who Jesus is to fit into their own thinking. And as I say that, you may say, well, why, why do you say that? Why would you say they're underestimating? They're saying salvation is here. They're proclaiming his name. They're so excited. So why would we say they're underestimating? And that kind of leads us to our second part here. How are they missing it? And I want us to think about this this morning and why it's important just as a general view before we even step into this. Why it's so important to, to spend time in God's word and to see this clearly and to see who he is and all these things. And uh, uh, one of my favorite uh, pastors often says, Dr. John Piper says it this way. And I've kind of picked this up and I say this a lot these days. But he says, right knowledge of God leads to right affections for God. And that's why we want to make sure that we see this clearly, see who Christ is and what's happening, because that right knowledge leads to right affections. So what you've seen in Jesus's life and his ministry, we've looked at this. We did a series uh, last year at the end of last year where we really saw this heavy as Jesus comes and he's pronouncing his kingdom. The kingdom is here. The kingdom is at hand. The kingdom's near and everywhere he's going. We talked a little bit about that last week. He would say the kingdom of God is like this. And he'd point to mustard seeds and different things. And he'd, he'd do all these all this uh, analogies and all along the way, so many of the people are missing that they're missing what his kingdom actually looks like. And that's kind of the backstory as we're looking at this, their understanding. And you have to understand this so many times as we can see all of scripture laid out and we see the full pictures, we miss the context of what Jesus is, is in and what's going on and who he's talking to. See, there was this misunderstanding with so many in Jesus's day that the Messiah would come at the end of history 
and he had set up a kingdom right there on earth, and that's how it was going to happen. And so that's what they were looking for. And then to, the, to a degree, it's almost you can't fault them to a degree because they're so tied to their view of how they would see it. And they're applying that to Jesus, and that's what's happening. We even see it here in the picture of the palm branches, right? Palm branches in Jesus' time in the context were waved for conquering kings. They were used in Rome for a coronation of Caesar or for great athletes that accomplished much. And they would do this, and they'd go out, and they'd welcome them, and they'd wave them, and they'd do all these things. And it had just this real strong connotation of, of earthly kings Conquering kings coming back. Even the Jews would use it 150 years before Simon the Maccabee, the Maccabean uh, revolution as they came and they drew drove the Syrians out of uh, Jerusalem. And then he came in riding on a horse conquering and they waved palm branches. So this made perfect sense to them. The conquering king is coming. But the but the uh, application was just off a little. They were seeing it as a as an earthly kingdom right now. And so what you have in this picture is almost a nationalistic rally that's all excited and ready to overthrow Rome. Yes, our our oppressors are going to be overthrown. This is our guy. This is going to happen now. And you can imagine the excitement about what's happening and as he's coming in and how excited they would be. And the reality is when we think about this, that so many times uh, we do this. We miss the fullness of what God has for us. We limit him in so many ways. We try to make him fit into our understanding and our little box. And that's what's happening here. Uh, That's what's happening when we elevate politicians or we do all those other things. We try to make it fit into our little thing instead of who God is and the way he's working. I mean, you can think about that in your life all the time. We try to limit God. We limit uh, what Jesus can do and the promises He gave us all the time. As I was thinking of an example of that, the one that jumped out off the page to me immediately was in Matthew 6 when Jesus says, I tell you, don't be anxious about your life or what you eat or what you drink, nor about your body or what you will put on. And he says, look at the birds of the air and the flowers of the fields and all these things. Don't worry. Basically, I've got you. Don't worry. And we try to limit God all the time. I mean, if we're honest, if I look back over the week, I worried about different things this very week all the time. I'm limiting who God is and what he's promised and what he's told us. And we do it all the time in so many different ways. And that's nothing new. It's the same thing that you see here. They're limiting Christ and what he is and what he's come to do. Although their words are true, their actions are not. Now, their words are true or even the actions aren't bad, but it's the heart that's behind it. They're missing so much. And you see this all the way around. In fact, we'll see if you if you read ahead in John, if you go home this afternoon and you read the rest of the chapter of John, Jesus begins to correct their misunderstanding of who he is. And he keeps talking about how he's coming to lay his life down and all these things. And the people scatter. They want the king now. And Jesus says, wait a second, this is not exact. It doesn't look exactly like you think I'm working so much deeper than that. And so you see that with the people, but you also see that with the religious leaders In verse 19, look at what they say. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. And by the world, they're looking at all these people and all that are there. And they're saying, we've lost it. They're so excited about him. They're ready to make him king. He's going to take over. We're going to lose our influence. All these things are happening. But the reality is they don't even see what's really going on. I want you to think about the way Jesus calls disciples that we talked about last week, if you were here with us. And what it means to truly follow him 
and to make him the center of your life and all things. How many of these people are really looking at Jesus that way? As I said, if you keep reading on and you look and you follow the events of the week that happened, you're going to see real quickly that a lot of them hadn't gone fully after him. Not even his own disciples. Right? Just a few nights later, as they take Jesus into custody to take him to be crucified and they take him off, Peter denies him three times that very night. You know, John tells us when you're reading here, he tells us right there in verse 16, he says, even his disciples did not understand these things at first. Nobody's getting it. So there's this beautiful picture of excitement and proclaiming who he is and it's the king and he's come and salvation is here, but everybody's missing what's really going on. And you see that all the way through it. And you see these people that will scatter. The sad truth is when you read this story and the excitement that's there, so many of these people are the same people that just a few days later are calling for his life. Because he didn't line up exactly how they thought he should. And so many of them turn on him and are ready to crucify him in just a few days. But the wonderful thing as we look at this picture, and now that we know the fullness of it, we see that God's still working even in all of this. That even though they're missing it, even though it doesn't quite line up with what Jesus is really doing, God's still working. And so I want us to think about this for just a second. What really is happening here? What's really going on? And there's some really neat things that Jesus does. And I I was really struck by this this week as I thought about it and prayed over this and read this scripture over and over. Jesus, the greatest teacher who ever lived, is teaching even in this moment. He's teaching them even as he comes in and even though they're missing it and you see it. Go back to verse uh, 15 for just a second. What John tells us or 14. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it just as it is written. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming sitting on a donkey's colt. So Jesus calls for the donkey. It doesn't tell us that in John, but this accounts in all four Gospels. The other Gospels fill in some of the details. Jesus sent them and said, hey, you're going to go get this donkey. You're going to go get it at this place and you're going to bring it to me. We actually just read that outside the account from Luke and what he says. And he says, you bring it to me and I'm going to sit on it. We're going to do all this. And then John tells us that they didn't get that quite. The disciples didn't really understand what he was doing. But Jesus did. He was pointing to Zechariah chapter 9. And I want you to think about this when we read Zechariah. I'm going to read just those two verses for you again. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation as he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the fowl of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. And the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and river to the ends of the earth. And as you read that or you hear that passage, that prophecy about what the Messiah would be like. And Jesus picks that donkey. I want you to think about this for just a second. Was that purposeful on Jesus's part? Absolutely. Did he know the context of Zechariah 9 and what it says and what he was teaching by doing that? Absolutely. That was part of his plan. That's what he was doing. He was showing them. And I want you to think about that because what he says is he comes in and the people are yelling out, salvation has come. And they're saying these things. And at one point in the Luke account, uh, the religious leaders tell him to be quiet, Jesus. And he says, if they're quiet, the stones will cry out. And what he's saying is the words are right. This is true. 
Salvation is here. The king's here and he affirms the words, but he's also correcting them at the same time. He's showing them what the king really looks like by riding in on the donkey. So he asks the question, why Zechariah 9? Why on the donkey? Why like that? And it's in verse 10. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations and his rule shall be from sea to sea. Jesus is pointing to, I am coming for something so much greater than overthrowing Rome. I, you think about this picture, Jesus could have come in, if he really wanted to whip them up into the frenzy, if he really wanted to embrace what was happening, he could have ridden in on a war horse, a great big horse, and said, follow me, let's go. And he had them. He had the people ready to do that. He could have got them going so much more and said, let's go. And they would have been expecting that and it would have been on. Rome would have been in trouble. But he doesn't do that. Instead, he comes humbly riding on the donkey because he had a whole different plan in mind. He's teaching them by coming. He's teaching them by showing I came not to be the conquering physical king on earthly terms right now. I didn't come to be the nationalistic king on this one little part of the world against one government. I came to take them all out. I came to take the foundation that upholds all injustice and all violence and all problems. I came to do away with sin itself. When you think about it, had Jesus led that revolution and he takes them and they go and they he falls he, he lets, if, if Jesus, if God were to let himself be limited by our uh, view of who he should be, what would have happened? So they overtake Rome and Jesus would be a perfect earthly king. But where would that leave us? We would still be in our sins. We would still be eternally separated from God. And Jesus knew that. And he's correcting all the way and he's showing them. He flat out says this to us in verses 23 and 24. They've gone up to the feast. And the scene happens and he comes in and then it says there's some Greeks there that come and they want to talk to him. What's going on here? And Jesus says they come and he answered them. The hour has come for the son of man to be glorified. That in itself is a huge statement. What Jesus just said. And if you spend time in John's gospel and you read through and you really look at that, that jumps off the page in John's gospel. That term, the hour always points to the crucifixion. Always the son of man is Jesus's favorite term for himself. He uses that over and over. That, too, comes from the prophets. But he says, so the hour, the time for my crucifixion for Jesus, the son of man has come. And that's the way I will be glorified. So what he's telling them is the way I'm going to be glorified is I'm coming to die. I'm not coming to overthrow this physical government. Truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. And so what Jesus is telling them that the way John writes that the hour has come. What he's saying is you are all thinking far too small. I came to do something so much greater So what does that mean for us today? As we look ahead to Easter next week, as we start to to point ahead to what's coming, what does that do for us? What does that mean for us as we look ahead? First, I want you just to think about this, that God loves us so much that he cares so much about his glory and showing us rightly who he is. He's not going to be limited by our misunderstandings. Isn't that wonderful news? (laughs) 
That would be really sad if he, if he had to work in just our limited understanding. But he doesn't. And that he loves us so much and he's got such a wonderful plan for what has come. He doesn't have to do that. That he was so willing that he proved his love for us and willing to come and forsake all those things and to lay us, lay his life down so that he could restore his creation. That he could bring about regeneration. The pathway to glory is through his death. He takes our wrath. He's most glorified when he shows us clearly who he is. And he only could do that by coming and doing for us what we could never do on the cross. So what does that mean for us practically? That's the heart issue of how much he loves us and who he is and the beauty of his glory. But practically, what does it mean for us when we grasp the way he came and what he's showing us? And it's right there in verse 25 and 26 in his own words. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me and where I am. There will be my there will be my servant also. If anyone serves me, the father will honor him. And what it means for us is our lives and who we are in Christ is it's all about him. He uses that term of whoever loves his life will lose it. And whoever hates his life in this world, that hate. We've talked about that before. It's a comparison. Jesus said that often, you have to hate your father, your brother, your mother, all these things. What he's saying is, in comparison, your love for me has to be so much greater than anything else. And that's what he's saying. When you understand what it means that the Son of Man, the hour is now here for him to be glorified by laying his life down, then what it means for us is he becomes the center of everything. He doesn't become a part of your life that you fit in over here. He becomes everything. There's no other way to look at it. There's no other way to see it rightly. So what it means is that we are willing to die to ourselves and make it all about him. Instead of making it about temporal things and earthly things, we make it about eternal things, which is him and his glory. And it totally redoes that. And then lastly, this is throughout this passage, but it's such an important reminder for us. Is don't undersell who God is. We try to make them fit in our boxes all the time and what we're doing and how we're working and how we think it should go. But the reality is he has such a much greater plan and greater things. And he's working in ways that we can't even fathom. Don't try to make them fit in your box of who he is. Let God be God. Let's let him. Let's look to follow him wherever he leads, whatever that me, whatever that means and continue to worship and trust him in all things. So as we move towards this week uh, on Friday, as we, we contemplate the cross and next Sunday, as we celebrate his resurrection, I just pray that you're seeing each and every day more and more clearly not to limit him. Let God be God and let him take his place. And let's seek to worship and glorify him in everything that we do. Let's pray together. Dear Lord, we thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your love. We thank you for uh, that you are just, that you are caring. I thank you for this beautiful picture of how when we're so missing it so often of the time that you are still faithful and you are still... uh, just going about your perfect plan 
and that we can trust that. I pray that we would do that more and more each day, that we would seek to see you in all things and in all ways. We pray all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.